Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome, friends, to the Touchdowns All Day with John Barber podcast. It's good to be talking to you today. It's a beautiful, sunny day in California, and welcome to our wonderful podcast, the podcast where we source the dopest jams and we deliver them straight to your mailbox, uh, like podcast app, basically, of, of your choice. Every other Sunday, delivered straight to you for free. Isn't this podcast great? Right to your mailbox. It's just perfect. Every other week, join us, folks. I know, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to get some message from like at childjambanfan.7 or something like that. And it's going to be like, hey, man, what is a mailbox? And I'm going to be like, really? Now it's now it's a mailbox that the kids have never heard of. First, it was typewriter and then it was a phone like cordless corded phone. Now it's a mailbox. Nobody's ever heard of a mailbox. Um, And, you know, actually, I think about it now. uh, This podcast actually never shows up in a mailbox for any reason. So. Maybe uh, maybe I'm the idiot here. So welcome to the show. Touchdowns all day with an idiot. Um, touchdowns all day with John Barber. Let's just get down to it. Today, very excited to have Tom Marshall, lyricist of Fish, wonderful contributor to the Great American Songbook, Huge honor to have him on the show. I know a lot of you out there. Tom Marshall is your favorite lyricist of all time. And for many years of my life, I've looked at him as one of the great lyricists in the world. And to have him out here at the Oasis Pond studio is quite an honor. So we're going to get to that interview later in the show. Let's get to some information up front we have disco biscuit tour coming up we have pittsburgh pennsylvania november 11 november 14 and 15 we have richmond virginia 16 and 17 burlington vermont 2021 of november and syracuse new york 22 23 of november that is the november tour we have a florida run december 11 through 14 which is orlando st petersburg and fort lauderdale and then we have New Year's Eve uh, at the PlayStation Theater. Closing down the PlayStation Theater in New York City. We have 27, 28, 30, 31. And there are some whispers of a tractor beam show also in New York that week. I don't think it's confirmed yet. Uh, I probably shouldn't have said that. So those are the upcoming 2019 Disco Biscuit shows. Get out there. Get your tickets now. Come see a show. It should be a good time. We're looking forward to seeing you out on the road. Special news this week, a total congratulations and absolute amazement to Iliad Kipchoge, who ran a marathon in less than two hours, which has never been done by a human ever in the history of the world since they've been timing people running marathons. So congratulations, Iliad Kipchoge. He did it in a pair of Nike Vaporfly 2s, I think, which have a carbon fiber plate in the shoe which is new technology for shoes. So congratulations to Nike for basically figuring out a shoe that is super fast and giving it to the guy who I've, you know, what I'm being told is arguably the greatest marathon runner of all time. 
And look at them. Look at them. Breaking barriers for humans. It's really great. I'm a little bit of a runner myself. And I ran a half marathon last year in more than two hours. So I just want to uh, congratulate Mr. Kipchoge in running a whole marathon faster than I ran a half marathon. It's very humbling. Also humbling today is Saturn. The planet has, we've discovered 20 new moons around Saturn. So there's now 82 moons around Saturn that we know about, which is now three ahead of Jupiter. So uh, Jupiter, get your act together. The uh, who has more moons race is on between those two planets and it's getting hot. So speaking of astrophysicists, I had this uh, really weird thought the other day, and I don't know if it has any credence at all in life, but I was thinking about this thing where, you know how sometimes like things get tangled up, like when you're in the studio, your guitar cable gets all tangled up in a ball, right? And then that getting it out of the, the ball takes hours. I mean, you literally could blow the whole session trying to untangle cables if you wanted to. And I was thinking, that, you know, that they have these little photons of light in the world. This is very, very science right here for a second. So they have this, these photons of light, and then they have these particles. And they don't know why the particles are sometimes light and sometimes particles. And they don't know what these things are made of. Now, what I think a particle is, is a cord ball of photons. So as you have these photons that can shoot around and be light, we see that every day. It's a bright, sunny day in California right now. There's tons of photons flying around everywhere. But sometimes those photons get into a cord ball. And then they ball up in this thing, and that becomes a particle. And there's different kinds of cord balls, and they all become different kinds of particles. Protons, electrons, quarks, muons, smarts, whatever, strange, all that stuff. So... That's my thought of the day. I don't know if it, if anybody out there is a physicist or something and you want to call me up and tell me or send me a message, you know, on Twitter or Instagram, hashtag touchdowns all day and let me know how crazy this idea is and whether or not they've already figured this out. And I just had a weird thought the other day. So thank you for listening to the touchdowns all day podcast. We are in episode 16. This is the Tom Marshall episode. We are going to answer a question real quick from Nick C. That's, uh, he said he, um, he'd like to see more into the mindset when composing some more complex pieces and how they evolved. How much was, how much music, he wants to really know how much music is in place when you walk into the band and say, let's learn this song. He wants to know how much music is done at that point. And the answer is as much as humanly possible. And then you back off of that a little bit because you want the other guys in the band to have space to create and be themselves for two reasons. One, you want them to own their line. And two, they're probably better than you at their instrument. So I could come in with a beat in mind or a line in mind for for Aaron or, or Mark But what'll happen is they'll probably come up with a better line on their own. And if they can't, then I say, well, try this, right? So it's really a win-win. If you go into the band room and say, do this, do this, do this, um, you might end up with a worse song. If you come into the band room and say, it goes like this, here's the structure, 
and let everybody create inside of the song, then you probably get a better song. Magellan is a perfect example of that. A lot of the lines in Magellan are lines that the guys in the band came up with at the time. And then there's a couple notes in there that are from the lines that I thought were good in areas where the guys were like, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do here. This part's strange. What do you think? And I'd be like, okay, we'll try this. And then they try that. And if they like that, they keep that. You know, but a lot of those lines in that song were all written by all the band members individually. And I thought they'd ended up being a great song because of it. I thought Magellan was much better when I walked out of the band room than when I walked in. And that's a difficult concept because when you walk into the band room, oftentimes you have this thing called demo love, which is you have this demo. It probably sounds terrible, but you've been working on it for four weeks. So you love it. If you go into the band room and try and enforce the demo onto the band, I think you end up with, you know, a very bite-sized chunk of music, which can be popular. I mean, there's a lot of bands that make this music that just sounds like a real band playing a demo. And the songs are great. I mean, it's art nonetheless, right? But in terms of our band, where everybody is a really great player, I like to walk out of the band room with something that I like more than the demo. And that's the goal for me. And a lot of times that's hard. It's harder than you think. And the demo love is real, let me just tell you. So you walk out, the band's playing this amazing thing, and then you walk out and you listen to your demo and you say, oh, I wish we could just be that. And then guess what? A year later, you're going to go back and you're going to compare what the band did to what the demo is. And you're going to be like, oh man, that demo is no good at all. Why didn't I just let the band do their thing. And so I think that's that's pretty much the answer to your question, Nick. Thanks for asking. Thanks for using the hashtag Touchdowns All Day and reaching out to the Touchdowns All Day Facebook group. It's good to see a, a lively conversation going on there. Let's get right into the episode. We got a lot of music to cover today. We got Tom Marshall on the episode. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Touchdowns All Day with John Barber. We're mass Episode 16, on our way to 20. We said 20, we're going to do 20. But this podcast is so much fun, we're not stopping at 20. Delivered to your mailbox every other week. Your podcast app of choice. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, you can hear us on Spotify, you can hear us on Stitcher. 
You can hear us on Tune FM. You can hear us on iHeartRadio. We are everywhere that your podcast can be found. We are a proud member of the Osiris Podcast Network. And I encourage you to go over to OsirisPod.com and check out all the great podcasts they have there. Tons of good stuff. And we are a proud member of the Podcast Network. It's a very nice place to be. We're having a lot of fun with those guys. Tom Marshall started the network and has flown all the way to California to be on the Touchdowns All Day podcast and do an interview for you guys. And it's an honor to have him here. So that's coming up soon. We're going to listen to some Disco Biscuit Jams like we always do, delivering to your mailbox every day. Just want to take a second and say hi to the folks over at Cash or Trade, cashortrade.org on the internet. We had a cool convo with them. They are a ticket reseller, and the tickets are all resold at face value. And I think that's pretty cool. I think it's really good for the scene. I think it's a good sign in the jam band scene where people are popping up creating businesses and services that are good for the community. Face value, secondary ticket market, cashortrade.org. Check them out. We're going to start with a Boop Crickets jam that uh, there's no date on this. So what we're going to do is we're going to give away a pair of tickets to any Disco Biscuit show in November to the first person that tweets at us using the hashtag touchdowns all day because if you don't use the hashtag, we'll never find your tweet. There's so many tweets. But use the hashtag and tweet the date of this Boop Crickets and you will get a pair of tickets to any of the November Disco Biscuit shows that you would like to go to for you and a friend. And uh, I think this is a good contest for for this show because I don't know what date this is. I'm sure it just got left off somehow. But... Apparently this, if you're a Crickets fan, this is maybe, according to Rich Steele, the best Crickets peak he's heard. I don't think that's even humanly possible that there could be a best, but he really likes this one. And uh, it's got a nice buildup. It's a little fast up front, and then it just kind of keeps popping and keeps popping. And they feel like, you know, as far as... Touchdowns all day goes. This is the kind of jam that exemplifies that. So let's check it out.
wall of sound explosion. Those synth sounds can get so huge in the room, they can fill up the entire room on their own. And it's always fun for me to listen to what the rest of the band does when the sound gets engulfed in a massive arpeggiated synth sound.
I really like that high-pitched synth arp coming over the top. It's on probably a high octave. And it keeps the jam moving forward, but it flattens out the harmonies. So the less harmonies means that the band can shift gears. There's a little bit more room. And it sounds like we're like kind of putting the... I'm doing some trucker guitar playing right here. And it sounds like we're like shifting gears to... There we go, to move forward a little bit.
was fun. That shit makes me laugh. There's a moment at the top. This is probably bad advice for guitar players, but it does happen to work in the Cricket's Jam, and it's worth noting. The part that makes me laugh about that is when you go to the major third, it's kind of over. You know, it feels like you kind of, you know, you've let it out at that point, and, and you can hammer the major third if you want, but... It just feels like it's it's hard to, to keep the jam kind of pushing up at that point. You've kind of capped it, as we say. So in that particular... But if you play the minor third, it's like super dark. So what I did in that jam, which I kind of thought was cool, was I actually like bent the minor third a little bit. So it played a little sharp. It's like a sitar thing. The, 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 it's like a Ravi Shankar thing. And you bend the C a little bit. You play the C a little bit sharp. But you don't go far enough to the C sharp or the major third in this situation and you end up with this kind of ability to keep going and keep going without playing the uh major third is kind of fun it makes me laugh to listen to that because you know it's uh it's like a half note of a half note i don't know microtone i think is what they call it so let's move on uh tom marshall coming up i just wanted to mention i didn't say this earlier i probably should have said this earlier but Tom Marshall has a great podcast called Under the Scales. I know you guys probably all know about it already, but for those of you who don't, it's a really great podcast. I've listened to it for years, and he does really in-depth conversations with a lot of people. There's a great catalog, and I think he's got Trey on this week talking about some deep dives into lyrics, Gaiuti deep dives and stuff like that. So check out the Under the Scales podcast, the Tom Marshall podcast, for the, you know, from for his own vibe on everything. He's coming up, but we're going to listen to one more jam here. This is uh, Trocadero from four nine ninety nine. So this is the old school stuff right here. This is a, a basis for a day.
I like this old school thing we used to do where we used to just play over the hat and get, do some colorful chord stuff. I was a big fan of this stuff. We even bring this kind of stuff back. We did a little bit of camp this year. It was very cool. And this is just a very, very active jam. Very classic 99 style active jam. The Trocadero was a Philadelphia venue that closed recently. And when we started, the Trocadero was a big goal for us. It was a big room. It was like 1,200 people. It had multiple balconies. It was kind of like an opera house from Mozart's day. And it was hard to get a gig there. You really had to draw. You had to have your numbers together. They were very particular on you being cool. And they just finally gave us a shot. And we we were super, super excited to play there. And you can hear it in the music. You can hear how excited we are. In the fingertips is, oh my God, we're playing the Trocadero. And uh, I, I can kind of hear it a little bit. I hope you can too.
That was fun. That was fun. I like the lick right before the main melody. I should keep that lick and add it to the song. Uh, really great to listen to Mark's playing in that jam. He just he's he's playing all over the bass. All these great riffs. Really great stuff. And the band just exploding and exploding and bigger and bigger. It's good to hear. Even back at the onset of this whole thing, we were doing that. Very cool. All right, here we go. We got an interview to get to. I'm going to hop right into it now. Uh, it's been pre-recorded, so it might change a hair. But ladies and gentlemen, lyricist to fish, Tom Marshall. We have Tom Marshall here at the Oasis Pond Studio. This is a huge honor. Hey, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. We are in the Valley in Los Angeles, and these guys drove all the way out to the Valley. So you always have to thank people when they come to your house at the Valley. You like you can't have anything at the Valley without thanking everybody for making it all the way out here. Well, one thing, you know, I'm, I'm a New Jersey guy through and through, and I really, when you think of a big city, I think of New York City, but mm-hmm. but I think it's big just population wise because LA is absolutely huge. Yeah, and uh, you know, you set up a meeting in New York. Even if it's on opposite corners, you're definitely going to get there within 40 minutes. This, like, to get to your place was a real trip. We had to have our own water and mules and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it was really uh, tough to get up here. So, yes, I, I'll say you're welcome. Yeah, it's special. <laughs> it's special. I had, a, I had a barbecue, and I had to thank everyone personally for coming. You did? Because it was just so far for everybody. But it is... Uh, it's a little relaxing place to live. No, this is a great place. I understand this is your new place. It's my new place, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I love it. I had the, the pad in the hills, the party pad in the hills, and it was just all problems. It was just, everything about it was problems. This doesn't seem to, to be a lot of problems. This seems just like a nice, chill spot. Yeah, I feel like I'm in the Shire or something like that. <laughs> the Shire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although that had problems. Didn't some uh, weird wizard come at the end and try to fuck things up? Yeah, they destroyed the Shire fully. <laughs> but that's like the, that's the storyline where... The hero's tale. The hero can never go back after oh. the tale is over. They just they have to destroy the Shire. Ah, oh, that's too bad. That's why if you're like, if you're Frodo at the beginning of the movie, you should really reject the the come the the call to action. You should reject the ring because you know everybody who you leave behind is going to get murdered. <laughs> just by accepting the ring, you're murdering your parents. You're murdering everyone else in the Shire. So your your message would be don't ever do anything and don't ever leave anywhere. Right. Especially <laughs> if they're filming you and telling you that it's going to be a movie. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, it's good to put that that disclaimer on it. Yeah. If a wizard shows up, like bat him out of the space, bat him out of your house. <laughs> it's hard to say no. I think they made that plain though. It's hard to say no to that particular wizard. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Always comes. I think they have a way of sort of manipulating reality and making you believe things and do things you don't want to do. Kind of like RJ getting me to come here. I know. It's crazy, right? Well, well no, I, I, I'm very happy to be here. It's true. It's truly a special, special occasion. So let's talk about, let's talk about songwriting process. Let's do that. And you said this is Oasis Studios, and, and you're the, one of the newest podcasts on Osiris. And I want to congratulate you for uh, reaching, was it 10 episodes? I know. It was amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. And we, we're excited to have you as one of our newest, although I think we have like three more since since you. However, uh, your, your podcast is great and I'm honored to be on it. Thank you. <laughs> so everyone out there who listens to my podcast knows that I'm on the Osiris Podcast Network. 
Tom and RJ are the founders of that network, and they're sitting in the studio with me right now. Let me ask you, Tom, I got you on mic. How long have you been podcasting for? What was the draw, the original draw to podcasting? It's actually why we came out to California. One of our reasons we set up, when we come out here, set up like five or six or seven meetings to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. One of them was with this guy, Scott Ackerman, who created the first fish podcast that I know of called Analyze Fish. Mm. And that's what got me into podcasting. And I listened and listened and listened, and it had a sad ending. And uh, I'm going to talk about it when I talk to him. Um, but uh, suffice it to say, when that podcast ended, that sort of gave me the impetus and the idea that maybe I could do a podcast. Maybe the world needs a fish podcast to replace that one. And who else to do it but me? And then when I met RJ uh, at a fish show in uh, at the Man Music Center, um, and found out that he had the current biggest fish podcast. And I told him my idea of coming out with a podcast. He said, definitely. And I'll help you as opposed to definitely don't do it. And I won't help you. <laughs> Which he probably could have said as well. Right. He, you guys, I, I was you thinking he could have enemies. Right. right exactly. That's sort of my point. And I was like, I was sort of impressed by that. And, and like everything, every, at every turn I was encouraged to do it. And so we did it. And together uh, we formed Osiris because soon we found that podcasting, and it continues to grow, was growing so much that everyone who had any kind of cool idea was asking RJ and I, how do I start podcasting? And, uh, you know, eventually we had, I think we have 34 podcasts now. Wow, that's impressive. I feel like I've had a very similar experience. Everything that I've done in the podcasting space has been super positive as well. Meeting you guys all, all of the 10 episodes have been very well received. And I feel like podcasting, it's a special place for us. Maybe we're going somewhere where people need us to be. <laughs> that, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a Californian way of looking at it for sure. Yeah. I mean, I also think that uh, we should have electric cars everywhere and that they should. What else is California? You guys are from the East Coast, right? So you look at California as it's weird. Am I, well, am I, do I no longer think it's weird out here? Did I lose my East Coast? Things that are California, like I just went to a wedding, my wife's hippie, older cousin, I guess he's 70 and this is his third marriage, but it was like the hippiest wedding. Things that are kind of newish still on the East Coast are old here on the West Coast because I think, you know, like kale, for example, I think I think I can blame that on you guys. I think, but that's like 10 years old for you, the kale movement, whereas now it's just sort of hitting us. At least it's hitting me in my house. It's hitting New Jersey now. Yeah, I think it's just now the kale wave is hitting. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, like gluten-free, I'm, I'm going to blame that on, on California. And so there were new things that I, that I discovered by coming west and going to sort of a hippie-ish wedding. Um, like, I didn't know that a hoe is kind of like the cool non- religious way of saying amen i didn't know that maybe that that's just a hippie thing i have never heard that in my life okay well what do you say a ho a ho yeah everyone knew it i thought he was going somewhere totally different there (laughs) well i could have i could have stayed with food but i instead went spiritual yeah it's super spiritual yeah yeah but you want me to go back to food? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think podcasting was started a lot by food, by dieting. I think people chasing like the perfect paleo, the perfect carnivore diet, like all these conversations about diet happened on podcasting originally. And it's our job to make people talk about things that are a little cooler than what vegetable they're pairing with their 
stake. You know what I mean? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, music, yes. Music podcasts, like, come to the rescue when you've heard too many diet dietary-type podcasts. Please leave it on the Osiris channel. Yeah, it's true. But actually, um, before we get off a of diet completely, <laughs> I have a question about kale. <laughs> I have a question. I heard that you have a project where you take anabolic steroids and feed them to kale spores and try and get them to multiply. Is this true or is this, what is this project? That's true. That's true. Um, it has many names and I'm surprised you know about it because it's top secret. Oh, really? Yeah. We bombshell here on the Touchdowns All Day podcast. <laughs> we don't mess around. We had people hanging in the bushes outside your house for the past three weeks watching your every move. And this is what they came back with. <laughs> Tell us about this. What is going on? I got nothing. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, come on. You have kale spores. You're taking kale spores. You're feeding them I steroids. Am? I am? That's what I heard. And I heard you need infrared light to be in the space. Is that true, too? What's that all about? The more infrared, the better if you're a kale spore. And there's different types of spores, different size spores, and and, uh, most importantly, different age spores. Interesting. Yeah, the longer they can stay alive without bursting, uh, the more valuable they are, sort of on a genetic level. What makes them valuable? Uh, Just the amount of of products within them. The amount of kale that you can get. No, kale spores aren't to make more kale. Kale spores create special other micronutrients. And what do you do with those micronutrients? They energize your cells. Wow. I love this. And this is a big genetics experiment. This is like, is there a, are you looking at the DNA in the spores? Are you cytoplasm level? We don't go, we don't go deeper. So what kind of microscope do you use? Oh, scanning electron, always. Wow, really? Yeah, to see any of this stuff. And how do you have that? Did you buy one of those? I, I think I have seven. Wow. Got one from Rutgers University just now. They didn't even know they had it. Really? Yeah. We just sort of drove away with it. Wow. Yes. Sorry, Rutgers. Yeah, they're so focused on trying to get a D1 football team (laughs) that they forgot about. My sister went to Rutgers, (laughs) and I didn't. I didn't take one of their electron microscopes. But now that I know you have seven, I'm feeling quite... Yeah. Lacking. I'm feeling like I'm lacking my microscope. I'll give game. you one of them. There's one we don't use. We, we call it Thor. You can have Thor. And what does Thor do? It's just a particular, it's like a stereo scanning electron microscope. We don't need the stereo aspect of it. You could do well here with your music creation. Throw it in your new studio here. Really? I'd love it. I'd okay. love it. There you so go. The one thing I'm missing to my, <laughs> the, my nubile trek into synthetic biology is any kind of microscope. Do you think, <laughs> would you agree with the statement or would you disagree with the statement? That biology is about to go through a large-scale revolution because the electron microscope has become readily available to the population. What do you think of that statement? I think had you made that statement 40 years ago, you would have been right. Wow. Yeah. So the, these microscopes have been around for 40 years. Oh, yeah. But what, what about having one in the living room or in the garage to the normal person? Isn't that your situation? Do you have a special space? Do you put on the space suit, the hazmat suit? What do you wear when you go into your biology space? Right. The reason you wouldn't want one in your house is like the amount of radiation it gives off and the, and the power requirements for it. Interesting. Yeah. When you turn it on, like the entire neighborhood goes briefly dark. You got to keep it in a, in a, in a very shielded place, mm-hmm. 40 feet underground at the minimum. And, and it's New Jersey type soil. It depends on the density of your soil too. California, you have, you have less dense soil, probably have to be 60 feet underground. Wow. So how did you dig this space for yourself or did you find a house that had? No, natural caves. 
Natural caves. <laughs> you need natural caves. Yeah, no, they can't be dug. They can't be hand dug. And you and what's the deal with the infrared light? You can't turn lights on in this thing. Yeah, let me think about that. How do we get onto the infrared light thing? Oh yeah. Oh, you're talking about the the spore management and the spore growth. Yes. Yeah. All right. Back to that. Oh, I thought we were, I thought we were there the whole. I thought time. we'd left that conversation. Oh right? no no, that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's where I thought we were the whole time. I still don't quite know what the spore does for you. If it doesn't, be, why is it called a kale spore if it doesn't become kale? Oh, it just uses kale as sort of the host. And then what is the spore exactly? What, what's the, if there's a host, then there's something using the host. What is that? It's the energized nucleus. Mm. It energizes the human, I'm assuming. Never. Never. N- not, not once. What the fuck are we talking about? I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. All right, let's move on. We're talking about maybe the process a little bit. Let me ask you a question. Your songwriting process now versus the songwriting process you had at when you were nailing lyrics to doors, what <laughs> is what has stayed the same from then to now? The desire to get sort of a coherent, what I still I'll call a song or a poem out of my head and make it entertaining in its new form, which is out of my head. Either I used to say on paper, try to get it from my mind onto paper, but largely it's on a computer now. But yes, trying to get it into a, a readable form that could provide entertainment to me and others. So are you thinking of how the lyrics are going to be sung or do you just think of the words themselves and whether or not you like them? That's often, yeah, I try kind of to remain pure meaning. I try just to listen to whatever is kind of coming out of the idea and I'm not thinking of it as a song just yet. I'm sort of trying to get whatever the idea and the supporting ideas around the idea out. Sometimes it could be a phrase And when I start writing it down, other stuff comes out too. One of my core concepts of belief, and I've said it many times on my podcast, Under the Scales, is listen to the muse, trust the muse. And so that's basically the nutshell way of saying that is if you're being kind of given an idea sort of from the ether, is what Trey and I say, Mm -hmm. is where these ideas come from. They're, They're floating around. There's myriads of them. And if you happen to get one channeled and, and you're blessed to, to be able to get it down on paper, just keep writing, just keep writing and don't really worry yet about the crafting of it or what's going to come of it. Because largely I find, and I bet you do too, that maybe one in 10 of these things can ever turn into anything. And that's a good ratio. Yeah, I think if so. you can do one in 10, then you're a pretty happy artist, I think. Yeah, I think you're on fire if you're yeah. one in ten. Yeah. So it's eleven o'clock at night. Let's say you've been writing for a little bit. Do you keep writing at that point? How far does keep writing go? Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, it would depend on when I started. <laughs> I think it's basically concept to concept, meaning I'm a one concept at a time person, and I know sort of when it's done or when I'm when whatever's feeding it has stopped. So like I'll write something down and. Sometimes I'll think, oh, this needs a little bit more. And sometimes I'll add that later, sometimes then. But for the most part, I can tell like if the spigot has stopped. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, it's, not, it's not really literally like I'm just channeling something from the atmosphere. Sometimes it is. Some, sometimes very much uh, it is. For the most part, I think once I get into a writing groove and what, for whatever reason I've gotten some idea, I'll pursue that until I feel like that's a kind of a cohesive poem. Do you ever get in that situation where you're writing kind of the cohesive poem and then you, you think of something that doesn't quite fit and so maybe you put that on the next page 
and then you kind of rock on that for a second. Then you realize you have two things going at the same time and you kind of have to choose which one do you work with. Do you let yourself have that kind of dalliance in there or do you just focus on the one? I'd have to think about that. I, I'd like to say I, I kind of finished the, the one thought, like get that down and try, you know, to exclude extraneous thoughts. I often, and the way that Trey, so Trey's my primary co-writer, as you probably know, the way he often works is to move two things together that I might, like if I give him five pieces of, of poetry that I think might be efficient as in their own right, he'll very frequently take poem number four and grab one verse from it as the as the chorus for poem number one. You know what I mean? Right. Unbeknownst to me and often with protestation from me. <laughs> is that a word? It is. Under, under protest. And yet it often seems like a brilliant channel change that I'll get credit for as the lyricist. Whereas, right. and, and this sort of gets at the core of my answer to a question that you might pose if you're asking a songwriter, how do you write music? And, and it's that collaboration is a huge, huge key for me. I rarely ever write a complete song by myself. I always love bouncing the words off someone else. I'll, I'll send you know an email to my friend Scott Herman. Or similarly, like I was just saying, once, it, once there's instruments and music involved, it's usually Trey and things change completely and you have to be, you have to trust each other and you have to know each other and you have to be willing to, to, to watch you know, an entire part of your poem be amputated or, or, you know, changed in, in, in many ways that you weren't expecting. And it's, uh, similarly, I think like Trey would be very, very open always to my saying that part kind of just doesn't work there. And, and yet it could be an, a part that he'd worked on for a long time and he, he'll just go, you know, you're right. Boom, and toss it. So I think it, it goes both ways. Collaboration is is king for me in, in songwriting. Yeah, I feel like it's very important to to say the word yes when you're collaborating with people. Yes and, right? No, yeah, yes and, because no, people usually don't say anything in the collaborative process until unless they have some kind of like internal or passionate feeling about it. Like no one's going to tell you to drop a section of the song unless they feel passionately that the song would be better without that section. So if, so if you're going to work with people and you're going to say something besides yes, you're going to run up, up against a lot of passionate discussions, a lot of passionate opinions. And yes just keeps things nicely moving forward. Fun in songwriting, keeping things moving forward is one of the most important things, like keeping ideas fresh. I agree. I've, there's people that I've found, and I'm not sure if it's because they're, they're not saying yes, but for whatever reason, I simply can't write with them. And found maybe three or four people in my life that I write very well with. And if I had to like focus on what that quality is, it really is the ability to to almost shamelessly <clears throat> throw your ideas out and listen without ego to theirs or or you know, you're basically putting yourself out there in the truest sense of the word. And that's how the good songs are written, I find. Yeah, the good songs need a little bit of magic. And a lot of elbow grease that happened before that magic. A lot of... So do you, do you collect just small poems about the different subjects and kind of yeah. have them available? Yep, definitely. Like um, <clears throat> the new... Well, it's not the new. This has been happening for years now. Since like 96, Trey and I started realizing that we write really well together. Well, we didn't start realizing that for whatever circumstance pulled us apart back when college in different states and then... 
a job in my case and a new band in his case kind of kept us apart and all I could do was send him lyrics. But finally, when circumstances got kind of better and allowed it for both of us, we started doing songwriting sessions where Trey would rent, for example, a house and have some of his uh, fish guys put recording equipment in, kind of like it would be very similar to the studio I'm looking at right now, which is basically a family room that has a drum set in it, a keyboards, guitars, and lots of good mics, and a, and a mixing facility, a recording facility. That's the way we've been writing lately. And so I'll show up to that with maybe 20 songs. And like I said, I'll, I'll consider them kind of complete songs, but anything at that point, I throw them on the table mm-hmm. and, and anything goes at that point. And Trey will often flip through them and he's got his 20 music phrases ready to go. And then we sort of go from there and collaborate in the truest sense of the word, meaning we'll also like fully improvise like some the endings of some of those songs and stuff too. Right. And so you're trying to find fits between the way that things sing. Yeah. Which will be almost when he sings them, when you guys are doing the collaborative process, that's almost the first time like a little baby bird flying They've into the taken air. taken that third dimension. Yeah. Which is, yeah, gone from like lyrics or just a song phrase to a full song with lyrics. Yeah, it's crazy. So is that a cathartic process when you see something that you've been worried about, the little words here and there, and then suddenly you hear it in a way that could fill like a, a stadium? Yeah. And again, that those are those are like idea nullifying concepts that I can't have in my head if I'm writing. I mean, I think maybe there's some use for it. Like someone like you, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's used to playing for in huge uh, arenas, you might sort of write a song like, how is this going to sound in, in room X? You I know? always do that. Yeah, you might be. Whereas always. I'm definitely, I find that like, how are people going to react to this song type thoughts are just like, might as well just pour cold water on me. You feel so. So when you're yeah. thinking about the lyrics, you, you don't have any thought, oh, this is how people are going to react to these words. Again, I can't make a, a huge blanket statement like that, but yeah, 99% yes, I would say yes. There's even like references to the crowd or, or the people listening in the song. And then, of course, I'm thinking people are going to love this line or people, you know, or yeah. going to hate this line or people are going to interpret this line in such and such a way. So you can't leave those thoughts entirely out. But yeah, for the most part, I find thinking about crafting a song for people and for people's particular reaction is not a good, good way to do it. It's got to be for me or for Trey or for us. It's interesting because Bob Dylan used to lock himself in a closet in his house with no lights on, sit Indian style and close his eyes and picture his songs being played for as large an audience as he could picture. It's probably some huge, you know, hippie field or something. And so everybody's got this whole entirely different process. Well, like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm divorced from the performer angle right. that you guys have. Trey has it. You have it. Bob Dylan, of course, had it. So that maybe is a step that I don't know about. And, and don't have to think about anymore. I was in a band briefly. I played my, my band Amphibian played 25 shows and we did all inf- all original music. So maybe back then I was thinking more about that. But now I'm happy I don't have to. So what happened to that band? You just stopped. It went through four iterations. You know how like three uh, 3.0 is the version of Fish we're in right now, mm-hmm. mar- marked by their hiatuses. Right. Mine, <clears throat> my band was was 4.0, marked by personality, personnel changes, mm. and unintentional ones. Did you guys tour? 
Uh, we'd played 25 total shows. Total. Yeah. No real tours. No. 1999 to 2004, we played 25 shows total. I think we crossed paths (laughs) a couple of times in those years. At Wetlands. Yeah. Yeah. So I played in Wetlands with Pete Shapiro standing behind me uh, on stage for some reason. Wow. I don't know why he was there, but he was. (laughs) And Pete goes to every show. And we... There must be a conspiracy that there's three or four Peach Piros. Because <laughs> there's no way to explain how. I mean, he's at every Disco Biscuit show. He was at Lock In right now. I don't know how he does all this stuff. Right. And he's here with us today. Yeah. yeah he's going to come into the <laughs> studio any second now. <laughs> hey, guys, what's up? Hey, Pete. <laughs> yeah. And he's at every Phil Les show. He's just everywhere. So you did the musician thing. You were like, that's not for me. You have the lyric thing. What I really want to know is is when you when you're writing do you ever have like deadlines or requirements oh thank god i thought it, this was going to be kale spores oh, okay all right sorry all right <laughs> i still have questions there but I'm, <laughs> I'm not convinced it's real anymore for a second you okay. had me for a second i was like wow this dude is seven electron microscopes what a nutcase i need six i need seven electron microscopes is what's going on in my head <laughs> Ask me the the song, the actual legit question one more time. The legit question is, when you are writing, do you have deadlines or reasons that you have to kind of write beyond when you're feeling this channeling of the inspiration? Like, Do you ever wake up and say, well, I don't feel it today, but I'm going to have a cup of coffee and write a song because I need this to be done by Thursday? I see. Yeah. I think less now than ever before, but I, in terms of pressure, I've read that authors of books, for example, they have like a morning routine. Mm-hmm. They'll get up, they'll have that coffee, they'll sit in their special chair, they'll open the windows, look out at the view, and pick up the pen and start writing. They force themselves kind of because they have to have a productive day. Right. Yes. So there was a period of my life where I would go to my job, which I hated about computer programming. Much like you, I had, uh, I did 18 years of programming. Wow. And I, I, mean, I got six. I did yeah, six. You got six in? Like, so you did one third of mine. Yeah. I would say my, my days, uh, you know, of the whatever, five hours of productive work were mixed with three hours of creating uh, silly lyrics and, and emails to my friend Scott. Mm-hmm. And so those times, were, whatever the pressure was, would create me, would make me write a lot. And so in a weird way, I could answer that question by saying, yeah, that was, the, that was some sort of pressure pushing me to write almost every day in that case. But no, now, now I sort of just, I write when an idea shakes loose in my head. So like I'll be, I'll be walking, I walk a lot, I exercise a lot, and, and the rhythm sometimes turns into a song, Mm -hmm. especially if I'm not listening to music. And so I kind of don't listen to music. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I find myself all of a sudden turning it off and then humming into my voice recorder, like because the rhythm of my walking has done something. And maybe it's a phrase that I heard in the podcast or whatever it is, but often that'll turn into a song or a song fragment that can be developed later. Wow. So you store them on the phone. You just kind of stack those. And yeah. I don't you, know what I did without voice recorder on, on my iPhone before. Honestly, I have a stack of little mini tapes over there from the voice recorder that I just got my stuff from my old, old, old apartment just uh-huh. the other day. Uh-huh. I haven't had it in probably 15 years. There's probably some gems in There's there that you got to go through. little tiny tapes, yeah. the little tape recorder. Yeah. It's like yeah. crazy that that's, that's how it was done back in the day. I know. I don't know how I, how I did it without the, the iPhone. Because also with lyrics... In the old days, I would have to wake up and turn a light on, which would necessarily disturb right. the person next to me. 
<clears throat> and so I would have to go into another room mm-hmm. and that would lose the vibe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas now I can quietly whisper into my phone, <laughs> you know, and, or, or something like that. If I wake up in the middle of the night or, or type without disturbing anyone. Yeah, my girlfriend has a, a video of me quietly whispering into the phone, and it's <laughs> literally the most embarrassing thing that I've ever seen. And yet, I thought I was alone. But possibly yielded, might have yielded the best song ever. I haven't turned that into a song yet, but <laughs> it's going to be super catchy. It's really catchy. <laughs> and then you'll be able to say, aha. I believe in the Mitch Hedberg method of, of, of nighttime ideas where <laughs> I have to convince myself that if the phone's over there and I have an idea, I have to convince myself that the idea isn't good so I don't have to get the phone. <laughs> and and but this one was good enough that I got it. And then I was singing it into the phone and the video of me doing it. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous. <laughs> well, you have to prove to us now. You had to prove to yourself that it was good enough to get up and get the phone. Yes. And now yeah. you have to prove to us that it really was. I got to make some kind of song out of it. Yes. Like yes. Yep. That's your challenge. It's kind of, I think the lyrics are about goat cheese. So I have to change the lyrics. That might need, like, goat cheese is the placeholder, right? Yeah, it's a placeholder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. I yeah, think I, I think... was saying goat cheese, but I think she thinks that I was saying goat cheese. <laughs> goat cheese, like the, the, is that a name or what does that mean? Something it's in Spanish? An Indian word. Yeah. Oh, oh, in, Indian. Okay. It means like leader Cochise. of the Indian army or something. Goat cheese. Okay. I was just, you know, sometimes when I, when I write music, I just use words that don't mean anything at all. Placeholders. To put. Yeah. Like kind of a, a more of a vocal tone to the melody. The proper emphasis. Yeah, because going like beep, beep, beep is okay. But if you, <laughs> if you actually try and put words there and just fail, you will direct the words that come later. Because you are, some, yeah. you're putting syllables, vowels, if you will, in places where they sound really good, yep. where you feel good about singing them. And then all you got to do is figure out what word that vowel really was. And then you can kind of write the lyrics around that. Yeah, well, here's another sort of crazy thing about about Trey, and of course, all my songwriting stories, 90% of them involve Trey, so it's no surprise I'm bringing him up again, but he has the talent where um, every every songwriter knows when lyrics are needed in a particular phrase, mm-hmm. and if the mic happens to be on, and you want to tell yourself, your future self, where these lyrics belong, mm-hmm. you'll sometimes just utter garbage, you know, just say stuff, like you said, like blah, blah, blah into the mic, but in the correct inflection. And, you know, Trey comes up with actual words. They might be completely a meaningless string of words, but then later, and there's a song, Everything Right, Everything's Right, um, where he said a lot of that, those things that we then later went back and turned into actual coherent English sentences. But sometimes the start of it couldn't quite get it out as he was singing it live the idea the thought was there in his head and he just couldn't articulate it and so we went back and fixed it and it turned out to be a pretty good song so you used his freestyle if you will we used his freestyle to to inspire the next level of the lyrics and this was occurring as he was writing and coming up with the chords so like the record was on and he had a mic on his mouth and a mic on his guitar it was just sort of going and the song came out of nowhere and it was fantastic. I think yeah. Eminem and Dr. Dre used a similar process. Well, those guys can just really just say articulate sentences from the word go. They're incredible, some of those guys. Yeah. The amazing, fully, fully realized thoughts. Whereas I can absolutely barely do it on a podcasting mic when I can adjust my own 
thinking speed. Well, have you ever tried just blatantly bragging about how great you are? <laughs> Seems no. to work great for, for, for them. I, for yeah. Them. yeah, no, I, over I'd be the bad top. At I'm so great. Get in line. <laughs> Suckers. I got this thing done. Lie to me. What did he say? Like, like he's, he's got this song where he says, uh, like, uh, I was so rich younger that I could pour all a dumb truck of money and set it on fire in front of you. I forget the lyric. It's a great Eminem lyric. He's, uh, he's still got it in a major way. I think he could probably set several dump trucks of money on fire right now. Not, I not think he does. It. I think yep. he does every once in a while because he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's got it together. So let me ask you one more question, I think. Sure. So lyrical influences, what's the one song where you go to those lyrics when you're trying to like, maybe you're stuck or something and you're like, I want to read some really great lyrics right now. What do you go to? Oh my God. 20 years ago, that would have been probably anything to do with Peter Gabriel because he was sort of my hero. I sort of grew up high school listening to Genesis, the old Genesis, the real Genesis. Real Genesis, yeah. right. <laughs> Before Peter Gabriel left Genesis. We'll, um, we'll put a link in the show notes explaining that to everybody you. out there. Yeah, please. <laughs> and I loved his lyrics like Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, even though that was the last album he made with Genesis, but also Selling England by the Pound and some of the early ones, Nursery Crime and Foxtrot. I loved, I even liked his lyrics after he left Genesis his albums were just called Peter Gabriel, so they number one, two, and three. Three is the one with Games Without Frontiers, yes. Intruder. Those songs are unbelievable, and those lyrics are amazing. So I always sort of strive to be like him. David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, put that on, and I always want to write a song, even even still today. Hunky Dory by David Bowie. Lots of Brian Eno. Very simple, simple, beautiful Beatles-esque lyrics. So I could put on Another Green World and immediately want to write a song. Those are my go-to. Those were my go-to. Now, I don't think I do it that much. I sort of rely on, like I said, the, the, the muse to, to tell me when to write a song. I don't really like doing it because I have to kind of anymore. So when you go back and look at, I, honestly, that list, I, I would have never guessed. I mean, maybe David Bowie might have guessed, but I never would have guessed Peter Gabriel, never would have guessed <laughs> Brian Eno. So I'm glad I asked the question. What do you look at when you look at those poems? Like the rhyme scheme, the, what they're talking oh, yeah. about, yeah. how they're saying it? The vibe, what are you looking at? The content, the, the words, what they're talking about, the, the song topic often, and the way they articulate it, especially Bowie. <clears throat> but I, I mean, I grew up on the Beatles, Beatles and Zeppelin. Yeah. Zeppelin, not as much, but Beatles, super, super simplistic and remarkably deep lyrics. And so it's like they get the job done. What do you think about the, the Zeppelin lyrics that are about the Lord of the Rings to come full circle to how we started this whole thing? What do you th- do? You think that's a cop out to just sit there and from the darkest depths of Morgan, yeah, do you- I met a girl so fair. I love it. Uh, I just think it's. Like, I think it's what he was into at the time, and 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 it works for me. It's like phenomenal. Totally. I don't think it's a cop out in any way. I think it was amazing. That was their inspiration at the moment. Yeah, I think he was sitting in the studio while they were chunking out all the grooves, just and reading, reading Lord of the Rings, writing, reading Tolkien. Yeah, tough gig, lead singer. Let me tell you. <laughs> Tough job. It's your only instrument. You better come up with some good words, bro. (laughs) Sit in the court, take a little acid and read Lord of the Rings and come. We'll tell you when we're ready for the words. Ramble on. It's a good song. That's great. Okay. So you're on the podcast here. (laughs) How has it been running Osiris Podcast Network? Has this been a real positive? 
Yeah. So this is probably my fourth startup company that I've been involved with the formation of to varying degrees of success. And this one largely due to an incredible CEO, my friend RJ, who's here and his organizational capabilities, which I have none of. Mm. Zero. Very important to have that. Yes. Uh, you know, so patting myself on the back, choosing the right CEO, so to speak. <laughs> Isn't that the trick with startups? <laughs> Choose the guy that knows how to do the work. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so I did that very correctly in Splice. I got the right guys to do that one. Nice. Oh, yeah, you sure did. Yep. Yep. I love. Uh, well, I haven't met Matt, actually, but I know I know Steve quite well. And he's definitely the right guy. Excellent. All right, folks. I think we made it. I think we went somewhere. Did we get there? I think we got some stuff down. Yeah, very much so. I feel good about it. I appreciate being asked and invited to your, your studio here, John. Thank you so much. I'm happy you guys are here. This, yeah. is, this is a very special occasion. <laughs> cool, man. I think we should we can go to the sushi spot now. It's probably open. We've earned it. We've earned it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have denied ourselves food in order to bring entertainment to the people via podcasting. Kale spores and all. We want everyone out there to know that we're hungry. We've been hungry since this whole thing started. All right, great. Let's wrap it up. I'm going to hit the show. We'll probably hit the theme song or something right about now. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. No theme song yet, folks. We got one more jam to do. Disco Biscuits Run Like Hell 1230-2009. The inevitable 99-2009 comparison is on the podcast here. Let's do it. This set list was written by a fan. I just ganked it. I like it. This is the fan set list for you guys. Good to hear Mark work in the crowd. Everybody's in a good mood. Let's throw some Peter Gabriel lyrics over this in honor of Tom Marshall's one of his favorite influences. This is Lambs Lies Down on Broadway, an old Genesis Peter Gabriel song. And here's the second verse. Nighttime flyers feel their pains. Drugstore takes down the chains. Metal motion comes in bursts, but the gas station can quench that thirst. Suspension cracked on unmade roads. The trucker's eyes read overload and out of the subway, rail imperial aerosol kid exits into daylight, spray gun hid. And the lamb lies down on Broadway.
love this part. It's always interesting to me when Aaron's playing two lines and then I'm playing two lines at the same time. And so we have five melodic harmonic things going on at the same time. It's always interesting to see what happens when the band comes out of it. It seems like we didn't want to go into the quote-unquote jam jam there. We're trying to stay funky, but the jam jam is calling a little bit. Let's see how far we take it. Run Like Hell, 12-30-2009. Alan got the shoulders moving on that one. Alan and I were playing a super funky beat at the end there. I love it. Keeping the jam jam clubby on that one, which, uh, you know, I love it when that happens. 
We had a uh, great podcast today. Thank you guys for listening. I think uh, I think that Run Like Hell is actually from the PlayStation Theater. Called Nokia Theater at the time. And the Biscuits will be playing there this year for New Year's Eve, closing it down. So a lot of clubby jam jams for you over New Year's. Come see the shows. It'll be fun. Thank you guys for listening. I just want to do a quick shout out to Kronk Mike, who edited the interview and... Just really made it tight and smooth and easy to listen to. And it takes hours to do that. So cheers to Crunk Mike. Great job. Thank you so much. Cheers to Rich Steele. Great jams. Uh, really great to do the podcast with those guys. They're, they're hustlers and they're fantastic dudes. And thank you to RJB and the Osiris Podcast Network. We are just doing it, folks. We're mass communicating. We're mass communicating. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Touchdowns All Day with John Barber Podcast signing out. <laughs>